Hi, everyone. It has been a while, um, and I'm sorry that I have not been on here, but I'm very grateful and excited to be returning to the show um, with another organizer who's up to really incredible work and really incredible creative endeavors that we're going to get into shortly. Um, But without further ado, welcome, Ellie. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for taking the time. I know it's a little earlier on that side of the country. (laughs) Um, So, Ellie, can you ground us a little bit on your sort of work? I know you're an incredible disability justice organizer, artist, community builder, and I know you hold a lot of titles. But I'm curious, you know, what values anchor your work? And kind of like, what are the values that make you wake up every day and continue to do this type of work? I don't know if I would call them values per se, but the things that really drive me is just, I really just want to affirm and celebrate and care for multiply marginalized um, BIPOC, particularly disabled BIPOC, Mm. um, just to really get the message across that, you know, you are not alone. it may feel like that sometimes. I know a lot of disabled people or uh, a lot of BIPOC living in certain parts of the country feel very isolated and othered. Um, and a lot of my work is about reassuring you that you aren't alone. There are other people who empathize with you who are going through similar things, not ex- the exact same things, but please never feel like you are the only one out there. Um, And plus, I just want to remind people that we all have, like, power and agency, Um, not necessarily in, like, the same amounts, um, obviously, but we all do have some degree of power and agency, um, and whatever way we can find to exercise that is just um, super important to moving forward in life. I don't know. Those are just like very fancy ways of being like, that's my way of loving on people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's that's really a lot of what my work is driven by. Yes. Mm. Uh, this this notion of care, which I feel like we've all been thinking more expansively of what care means through this mm-hmm. pandemic. Um, I think seeing all the displays of mutual aid of folks sort of reimagining like how we show up for one another and ourselves in these times. Um, Yeah. Like even for myself, it makes me think a lot about what care means and like what, how we embody care. Um, I'm also on that, on that note, Ellie, I'm thinking around the ways in which through this pandemic, through COVID-19, I think by masses, we are consciously thinking a lot more about Um, In some ways, actually, not everybody, but a lot of folks, a lot of us are thinking about what disability justice looks like, could look like, especially under an economy that does not care about us, that does not have that value of care for our people. Um, And I'm curious, through this pandemic, what are some of the noticings or observations you have noted and how folks are relating to, you know, disability justice work or even care work, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to caveat this by saying, like, I still feel pretty new to disability justice myself because mm-hmm. I was only introduced to it in 2017 through um, Talila Lewis, an incredible organizer, abolitionist, attorney, attorney. Um, 
And so I haven't been in the disability justice space um, as long as as long as many other people. Um, but still, I notice that as it's gotten popular, um, I feel like it's gotten a little bit depoliticized. Um, mm -hmm. And people keep confusing disability justice with disability rights when disability justice is very much about things um, we can do outside of the law um, and how we care for each other. And there's, you know, very clear 12 principles. Um, and a lot of people moving into disability justice, I think, want to interpret it um, as the way that they need justice, which is which is understandable, um, but there's also very clear tenants that have been set out already. Um, and so I think it's important to, when you um, start uh, learning about new movements to learn about, you know, the history and the work that's already been done in that space. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that like expanding it is bad or anything, but just like knowing where it's come from, it's helpful for determining where we move forward. Um, and particularly like disability justice talks a lot about um, leadership of the most impacted. Um, and this is something that I've been a little concerned about. Um, like I notice a lot of people have been moving into disability justice, but I've also noticed that a lot of the most um, vocal and prominent people are not necessarily the most impacted. Um, so I just- Can you share a little bit more on that? Because we know that's a tendency in yeah. a lot of movements. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm curious for you kind of what what is your noticing and yeah, maybe a little bit more on that. Of course, yeah. Um, I will say that like, I wouldn't even consider myself, um, I, I'll just start with me. I think it's easier to, to talk about yourself. Um, and I am a light-skinned East Asian. Um, and I was born in Taiwan, and, and I am queer. Um, I'm gender fluid. Um, I'm disabled. Um, I have a lot of marginalizations, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm the most impacted systemically. Um, and so I'm like, should I be a leader in disability justice? You know, I'm happy to do my projects, but um, I feel like we should really be mindful um, and really be allowing um, black disabled people to to take the lead in disability justice and to really move it forward. And particularly um, something that I know people don't necessarily like to talk about is there's a lot of colorism in the space. Um, and I'm like, it's, um, it's not just like anybody black being the leader is good because as we know, um, a lot of mainstream media and a lot of society just tends to favor light-skinned folks. Um, and so I think it's important for us to realize like people experience different levels of oppression, not only on on the racial level, but also just on um, basis of skin color. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm just like, when you think about who is the most impacted by systemic oppressions um, and the intersections of them, like, who would that be? And asking yourself, is it me? Um, not saying that you shouldn't work in the space, but sometimes I just get frustrated that disability justice leaders who are asked to speak at events are like the same people over and over, you know, mm -hmm. and like the lightest skinned 
of the folks, <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, hello, <laughs> where are all, I know there are a lot of black women, black non-binary people, black gender queer people who like have a lot of work that they've done and why aren't they getting the mic, um, mm -hmm. so to speak, you know, metaphorically or literally. Yeah. Oof. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a pattern that like, you know, the anti-blackness and the colorism, like, is just so um, persistent. It is so blatant and it's also so global. And yeah, it's it's really frustrating to see the ways in which it manifests itself even in our movements, right? Even in the spaces that want to center conversations of justice and transformation and healing. Um, but I appreciate you sort of like grounding us in that, like, oh, this is also reality. This is also some shit we have to contend with, right? Like, you know, we don't get a pass because we're talking about justice. And I think sometimes folks kind of want to feel that way, like, oh, no, but I'm doing the good work. It's like, yes, and like there's many realities that can be true at once. So thank you for for grounding us in that. Um, Ellie, can you Tell me a little bit about, I know you have like artistic projects. I know you have your organizational work. Like, you know, can you sort of like bring us to all these different projects and, you know, the ones that are sort of consuming your time, I can imagine. Um, so my main thing is um, I do most things under um, Effect, which is an umbrella grassroots Spon fiscally sponsored project <laughs> um, that puts its emphasis on um, creating resources for multiply marginalized people and embodying disability justice. Um, and those are just very wordy ways of saying like, I want a project in which I basically make no money <laughs> and uh, any money we collect, we get to give to um, other disabled BIPOC or uh, multiply marginalized BIPOC because um, just paying people is super important to me. Um, I think especially in this country where um, black people's labor has been taken for granted, you know, I don't, I don't think, I think free labor is just overrated. So I think it's <laughs> very important to just be able to pay folks and affect as the umbrella that I do it under. Um, so I have two projects um, that are active right now under effect. Um, one, the newer one is the Community Care Awards, which is hopefully going to become uh, an annual award where um, we take nominations from the community um, for people local to the Pacific Northwest um, in the U.S. Just because of U.S. nonprofit law, it's, it's easier to keep it within the country. Yeah. Um, but we ask for nominations for people um, basically in Washington and Oregon who have uh, been doing the work of um, community care. And uh, we try to give them $500 just as a, a tiny thank you for uh, and recognition for everything that they've been doing. Um, and we've only done it one time. Um, I'm hoping that it can become a yearly thing. Mm, yes, love that. I love a good celebratory acknowledgement. Um, 
And then I was also learning a little bit about your work um, holding down disabled in here, which just mm -hmm. seems like such an expansive and diverse sort of like storytelling project. And I'm also a Gemini. So anytime I'm like storytelling anything, I'm like, yes, say more. Um, <laughs> so so uh, tell us a little bit about Disabled in Here. Um, I think even with the title, it's very powerful and it's very clear and, and sort of unapologetic. It's like, this is what it is. Um, but also curious to hear from your own perspective, like, you know, what drove you to be like okay we're absolutely missing this this is a, a gap and sort of how has it been unfolding this project yeah so disabled in here is effects main project um and it's uh both a free stock image collection and an interview series um because there's just so much out there about disabled people um but I should emphasize the word about, it's not so much by disabled people, um, and even less when you look at things by disabled black and brown folks. Um, so I really wanted a project that really um, came from us, fr uh, by and for us, um, in order to more accurately portray uh, and celebrate you know, the realities of being. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and also to sort of flip the script into um, filling up the space with stories of joy um, because so much of like any disability coverage is about like, oh, trauma porn, I've over or inspiration porn, I've overcome. But, you know, I haven't overcome anything. I'm disabled every day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I continue to be disabled. I probably personally will become more disabled over time. Um, and that part does suck sometimes. And other times, you know, it's life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody deals with different things in their life. Um, dealing with disability systemically sucks a lot. Um, but there's a, just a lot of like little moments every day that I felt like people weren't understanding. Um, and I was thinking really hard about like, how could I convey um, more about, I guess, disabled life and disabled black and brown lives, um, particularly um, with a focus on um, collaborating with like queer folks, um, fat people, and I mean fat as a neutral descriptor, not an insult. Um, and, um, you know, darker skinned folks who don't necessarily get to um, be front and center. Um, and so I was thinking about a project that could really celebrate um, a bunch of different types of disabled uh, people of color. And I came up with Disabled in Here. Um, and initially it started as just like stock photos, um, just because I think the photos are just such strong visual impact mm -hmm. um and i love the idea of being able to capture people as they are with their own mobility aids or you know um whatever um disability devices accessibility devices they have i want i was like bring it all <laughs> we want to capture you in your full glory yes. you know and um i very much want to collaborate with people as much as they want to collaborate um, in terms of like when we um, work with different 
models, so to speak, because um, folks aren't professional models. I'm very much like, hey, is there anything that you particularly want to shoot? Is there something that you want to get across? Like, what do you do? What do you want these pictures to say? Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes people have a lot they want to contribute and sometimes they have less. Um, and, you know, I want to make it flexible so that like I'm not asking you for a whole bunch of we do pay these folks. So it's not free work, but um, I don't want to like burden people if they don't want to think about that kind of thing. But I also want to give them the freedom to really express themselves further. Yes. Um, so having people um, being in charge of their own narratives, I think is just so powerful. Oh, absolutely. And it's really beautiful to hear how even like sort of behind the scenes, like, you know, beyond the image that the world sees, it's this really collaborative and really like agency affirming um, process. Like that's just really a, a beautiful reminder of how, you know, how it should be, right? Like what actually feels good. And, you know, hearing you sort of um, reflect through this process, it's been making me think a lot more and I'm curious what your opinion is um, of like how there is increasing visibility of disabled folks in sort of like you know major brands campaigns right mm -hmm. um, be it like Savage Fenty or you know all these different Nike like all these different folks and we know that especially after 2020 um, a lot of brands and marketing groups have you know caught on to the fact that like oh, all of these groups exist and they're here, like to your point, disabled in here. And for them, you know, it seems like a, a great marketing st a strategy. But I also, there's something in my body that responds like so warmly when I do see fat folks, when I see more black and brown bodies, when I see disabled folks, when I see queer folks like in these campaigns. And I also want to like challenge myself, like, okay, what are the limits of representation? And like, can we allow ourselves to just be like, oh, this is iconic? Like, yes. But I'm curious kind of like how you're making sense of this sort of increasing visibility for disabled folks. I'm not going to be unhappy with more visibility, but I think it is an important question to ask, like, who is in charge of these images? Who is driving the perspective? You know, mm -hmm. who are we actually centering? Um, just because someone is part of a campaign, does this mean this campaign ac accurately reflects them? Mm. You know, um, like, and ultimately, who is the audience too? Because when big brands do it, you know, they are not actually necessarily marketing to uh, disabled people. I find that a lot of times disabled marketing is actually marketed at uh, non-disabled people because it's mm -hmm. more like, look how good we are. We're a great company. Therefore, give us your money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it's like it sort of reinforces the feel good for mostly like non-marginalized people. You yeah. Know? Like I can imagine a lot of white folks being like, oh, yeah, like this brand is progressive because like look at this campaign. And I think those are one of the one of those several sort of concerns I have with like, hmm, what happens if we get overly satisfied with just representation? Um, and I really appreciate what you were bringing up around like, yeah, who? what are the intentions of this? And also even like behind the scenes, like how much creative direction and narrative control do these individual folks hold? Um, 
which is, I think is this really, really important question. Um, because yeah, I think most of the times we know, even if someone's like modeling something, it's like you are, yeah, like there's so many things have already been set up for you and you're kind of there like just to be the face or the body or whatever, like, you know. And are you even allowed to say no? Like if you disagree with something, um, if you showed up at Rihanna's, you know, Fenty shoot, would you ever feel comfortable enough to be like, I'm sorry, I don't want to do this? Um, and this is just something I want to encourage is like encourage giving people the option and the opportunity to say no to you, yes. <laughs> you know, cultivate um, your ability to hear and accept a no. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think there's been times where I have even like even myself, I haven't felt the most empowered and in my agency to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I did. Um, it's also complicated because they make so many of these brands make you sign NDAs and stuff like as legal protections, even across these things and um, sort of reinforcing secrecy, you know, if, right. Uh, you know, like even now I'm like, I, I can't I don't think I can say what TV show or what what this was for. But um, yeah, some time ago, maybe sometime last year. I was doing like an episode, you know, on like a uh, like a TV, a new TV show, and they made us like play this game that was like really uncomfortable, and it was kind of like problematic statements, and us kind of like responding, and like problematic tweets, and us responding, and it was like it was so uncomfortable. Um, it was just really uncomfortable, and you know, it was bizarre because you know, there's like so many people on set, there's like. 15, 20 people behind, like behind that camera, you have lights on you. Mm -hmm. And I can personally say in that moment, I wasn't necessarily, I knew in my body, I could feel like somatically speaking, my body was like, this is not okay. You know, like you are now like part of this almost like je problematic jeopardy. Um, and I wasn't the, I, I didn't really know how to navigate that situation until we sort of asked the producers, like, can we pause this? Um, we're like, that was really weird. Like, that doesn't feel good. Like, I don't want to partake in this. And it was kind of, you know, like, it was a tension. So, you know, even just hearing you, Ellie, like, ask these questions, like, point this. It's like, oh, shit. Like, you're bringing up some stuff for me. I'm like, oh, you know, it's like sometimes we don't feel like we're in our agency to ask that. And I can only imagine, you know, this was like a an emerging show. I could not imagine doing that in a major brand set. You know, and I think we're sort of told to just be grateful that like we're the ones that, you know, the select few that made it into these spaces. Yeah. And, you know, some of that fear and tension is totally legit because there are actual industry consequences. Um, a lot of the times if you try to assert your your rights and your agency. Um, and so when I work, I try to be very mindful of like different power dynamics and to um, never surprise people with things that are happening as much as possible. Obviously, you can't like, I'm such a control freak. I love, 
I love being able to plan things, but I also know that, you know, things happen. <laughs> things happen. You you can't literally plan out your whole life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why I try to build in. Um, anytime I, I put anything together, there's like a lot of breaks built in, a lot of check-ins just to be like, yes. how are you feeling? Is this good? Uh, did you want to stop? Are you okay? Um, and I just like, I, I think it also helps when you just like tell people, you know, I'm I'm here for you. And ultimately, like, is disabled and here a good project if if our participants don't feel good when they are part of it? You know, like uh, I think there's all these parts of like what makes a project good and powerful, um, and what makes it um, successful. Um, publicly versus like successful to you as a person and to me my projects are only as successful as um the people who who uh, participate in it and you know get to see it you know so yeah um like from i don't know certain standards people might say disabled in here is successful because like you know the ada uses our images on their website their new website and like the bbc has used us and disability rights organizations use us and like to me i'm like the most successful parts are that like i got to pay people and i got to work with so many disabled illustrators that um we're so surprised um, when they're like, can I do this? And I'm like, why can't you? <laughs> yeah. why, why, why can't you do this thing? Um, I just try to show up and be supportive. Um, I'm not saying I'm perfect at all. I'm definitely uh, a very flawed human being. <laughs> but I just, I very much want to be mindful that we're all humans and like, to me, um, respect means like treating each other as fellow humans with care. Yes. It's funny because it's like such a simple ask. Um, But I know in this in this economy, in this society, it feels it feels like such a task to ask people like, can you just treat me with respect and like mutuality and reciprocity? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and, and that makes me think a little bit about and we were chatting a tiny bit about this before we started recording. But the sort of like mainstream ploy of like return to normal. We are post pandemic y'all like war is over, get over it. How are you making sense of this? Because (laughs) everybody I know is exhausted, um, deeply anxious and feels very far from quote unquote things are normal. But yeah, how are you making sense of this push? It's just a, it feels like a nationwide and maybe even international um, campaign of gaslighting, really, where everyone's buying into this fictional version of reality. First of all, the pandemic is still going. We constantly have new variants develop. So I'm confused. What do you mean by post? Um, Is your definition of post that you just don't want to deal with it anymore? (laughs) Because that's not typically what post-pandemic means. Um, So you're like, okay, this is is an interesting form of wishful thinking. Um, (laughs) And it's it's just also weird where people keep wanting to return to normal. And you're just like, okay, um, there's kind of no more normal. Like the pandemic is here. People have died. It's kind of rude for you to tell me 
return to normal. <laughs> um, and furthermore, like, what is your definition of normal? Was it ever good? Like, who was normal good for? Yeah, obviously good for corporations, I guess, because, you know, everybody gets to um, really work super, super hard to be a productive, functional human in society and make more money for other people, not necessarily mm -hmm. yourself, but you get to make money for the corporations and for the economy and, um, you know, to and you for all that, I guess you get the benefit of covering some bills. Hur hooray. <laughs> Covering some bills um, and filling in the gaps that I personally feel like uh, the government should be caring for more. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's so wild. Like, I, I'm going to go get tested later. And my partner was sort of asking me, like, okay, well, do you know, like, do you think that one's still open, the testing site? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, everyone's reading about how, you know, the government is choosing to sort of clock out clock out the funding in significant ways and here in florida i mean i live in florida you know has been such a you know such a, a place of topic and debate in this country during this whole pandemic during this past two years and yeah i was like oh wait good question yeah i have to actually check and like that made me that got me so upset honestly that i'm like oh yeah these people just think like just kidding it's cool close the testing sites we're cutting the funding it's, I think to your point, it's rude and it's just really dehumanizing and it is gaslighting because, you know, I was gonna uh, like host a friend who um, has like moved away and is here in Miami and they were exposed to COVID and I'm like, okay, yeah, like we're very much still in this, you know, like I work with young people in a place where there's no mask mandate in schools, right? So you're in classrooms with like 35 other people if not more with no mask mandate right so it's like again falls on the quote-unquote individual responsibility on people to affirm care and I think that's something that's been really hurtful to see unfold that this government has and corporations and all the people in power have used the pandemic to reinforce hyper individualistic ideas of care and it's like, wow, y'all would use a pandemic to like serve yourselves in that way. Um, but yeah, I'm curious for you, Ellie, like how are you, how have you even been thinking about care a little bit differently um, through the pandemic, you know? Um, if I can return to what you were just saying about um, the emphasis on individualism too. Mm -hmm. I also think that's funny just because um, like we heard that EasyJet, the airline, lifted the no mask mandate and oh no, um, they thought this would benefit them to push it onto individual folks, but they found out that it meant their staff just uh, had to call out because so many of them were down with COVID um, that they had to cancel flights. So I'm like, it doesn't even make sense from a money standpoint. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm confused because, uh, I mean, I'm not confused because this is sort of what I expect, but I'm also like, it doesn't make sense monetarily in the longer term. Um, so what kind of like really limited short-term thinking is going on where you think if you just push onto individuals, your company is made up of individuals. <laughs> uh, what do you think is gonna happen when so many people just get sick? And um, before we started recording, you were talking about um, 
this being a mass disabling event. Um, and I just think that's very much true. We just don't know much about long COVID as a chronic illness. Um, and, you know, patients are constantly not being believed. And there's also all this emphasis in media about so-called mild COVID. And people get confused about what that means because they think mild COVID means mild. Like an obvious jump to go to, but like mild COVID just means you don't end up in the hospital. You know, it doesn't actually mean that you, it doesn't even mean that you can recover 100% from COVID because a lot of people with so-called mild COVID end up with long COVID and are like, oh no, I can't climb stairs anymore. I can't breathe properly when I try to do anything. Um, and it's just, I, I'm like, what is the word I'm looking for? I don't know. I just, maybe instead of words, I'm just going to do an exhaustive sigh. <laughs> just a really long, uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, um, sorry. Can you remind me your question about um, care that no, you were I'm like, asking? No, like that's literally, <laughs> I'm like, that's where I'm also at. Like okay. 100%. I'm just like, it's. Yes, it's so upsetting in so many levels. Affirming the exhausted sigh. I feel like I do those every other hour um, these days. And I think on the flip side, mm -hmm. you know, as we've all been navigating this pandemic and what it means for our health, our bodies and our communities and our networks of support and care, you know, in some ways I think of like early pandemic where people were sharing on like TikTok and social media, like how to do like your fire tonics and like your ginger this and your lemon water that. And like everyone was just sort of like trying to distribute as much of information as a, as a way of like support. And I know even like in my community, like folks were just like preparing tea bundles for each other and like preparing little care packages to distribute around. And I think some of that has really like, um, slowed down, right? As like the mainstream has continued to push like, oh, there's no need for that um, in some ways. And I think it brings me to this question that I had mentioned to you, like, you know, how have you sort of seen, you know, support or really not just support systems, but like care networks sort of unfold in this, in this pandemic? Yeah, um, definitely when it started, there were so many people jumping into mutual aid um, with so much enthusiasm and so much energy uh, that uh, I don't want to, I was like, how do I phrase this um, in the kindest way? Like, it was clear that people would burn out. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, um, if you are new to a space and you jump in like 200%, it's just not sustainable, you know, mm -hmm. and it's not a judgment on anybody. It's just literally not sustainable for anyone. Yeah. Um, so, um, I haven't been seeing very much in, in the space of like mutual aid, um, uh, at least locally for me. Um, and also as another caveat, I don't get out much. <laughs> I'm I'm mostly at home these days and I have seen like one or two people in person um, friend-wise since the pandemic, um, just because I'm high-risk COVID. And, you know, sometimes I'm like not totally sure I want to be living, but 
<laughs> but I also just don't, this is not really one of how I want to go out either. I don't want to go out from COVID. So I've just been trying to be as careful as possible. But from what I've seen, um, definitely mutual aid efforts have gone down. Um, um, but where I've seen efforts continue is uh, in a lot of grassroots works from from Black folks in particular um, who have been showing up pre-pandemic and know how to continue showing up because they know that it is a long-term need of the community, you know, and I, I love that. I love seeing collective care and interdependence. Um, and I think uh, Black folks just have a long history uh, of of doing that for each other. and locally there's some groups that like clearly have experience in this area and know how to pace it so that you don't necessarily just burn out right away um, and definitely asian communities have that as well um maybe slightly less so in the u.s um i'm like i'm originally from taiwan i'm like taiwan is handling this pandemic so good in comparison to us taiwan's not perfect but uh, when i hear about in taiwan like if you go there you quarantine, but they deliver you things. They deliver you meals. They deliver you protective equipment. I'm just like, wow, <laughs> look at this. The like caring for each other on a very organized government level is incredible. Um, and it's all something um, that we can try to like take uh, inspiration and learnings from, you know, here in the U.S., <laughs> Mm, we have many things to learn from the rest of the world. Yes. <laughs> so many. And, you know, on that on that note, Ellie, like, what is bringing you hope? I'm always thinking about Maryam Kava's quote of hope is a discipline. And I try to hold myself to that because I think when we look around, there's many reasons to feel hopeless, right? And to feel sort of just exhausted and depleted. And I'm trying to hold myself to like, make space for the exhaustion and the, and the fatigue and the like I'm tired and the sigh and also like claim my moments of joy and claim my moments of light and interdependence and like community mm -hmm. so curious for you like what what's feeding your hope right now um I'm such a terrible person to ask that question to <laughs> <laughs> I I have um the low-grade depression that's with me all my life. So I'm depressed pretty much 24 seven. Um, and despite how I sound, um, I haven't been feeling that hopeful. Mm. You know, I, I have been struggling. It's, it's a thing I've been struggling with, um, particularly during the pandemic of like, what things can I look to? And in the past, I could try to make some future plans that are fun. You know, um, with friends that I love, um, maybe trying to travel to some nearby place. Um, and now I don't have that so much. So it's hard for me to hold on to that seed of hope. Um, but I will say that something that does fill me up is just getting to speak um, to other multiply marginalized folks and other disabled folks. Um, it feels at least validating, you know. Uh, much like how I try to do for others in my work, like just mm -hmm. talking to other people who can relate is very validating for me. Because um, I often feel like, you know, you, especially when I'm like home by myself <laughs> with my pets um, and my partner, uh, but still, um, it feels 
my partner is non-disabled. And so a lot of times it feels like you're in the space and I spend a lot of time in my head. Um, and I'm just like, oh, feels like I'm the only one going through this. I know I'm not, mm. but I just don't have enough interaction with people um, anymore. And I'm like, I need more of that. I need to, I guess, work harder at cultivating um, relationships and interactions in COVID safe ways um, so that I can remember that, you know, there are um, fantastic people out there <laughs> as much as it can feel like you're surrounded by like horribleness and Absolutely. everything is awful but you need to find um, people animal things that resonate with you and um, I, I've also heard from folks that like it's hard because the things that worked for them at the beginning of the pandemic don't work anymore and I think that's true for me as well. There were like distractions I could turn to. Um, and ultimately I think I'm working on this. It's not like I have it figured out, but ultimately thinking about like, what is the most important to me? Um, and how can I bring a little bit more of that in my life? You know, um, yeah. and I don't, I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> that's why I'm not that hopeful right now. I'm just, I'm trying to constantly think on it to figure out if there's small things I can do or big things I can do. Yes. I mean, you know, I just, just want to affirm that, right? Like I also share, I also share this reflection of like, wow, you know, when the pandemic started, I was like on my A game. I was like, I'm gardening. I'm like making pasta from scratch. I'm like <laughs> amazing things. Like I'm on it. And it's just, I think, to your earlier point from, like, a pace perspective, and I'm an organizer, organizer in a place like Florida. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, like, I I know in other areas, like, how important it is to pace yourself. But I think the pandemic was just such a shock that we were, we went into overdrive and we put ourselves in overdrive. Mm -hmm. And now it's been over two years and you can't, I mean, many of us have been in overdrive our entire lives because of trauma and oppression. But I mean, sustainably to feel good, you cannot be in overdrive for so long. And I know like I've experienced like being in overdrive to like full escapism and then back to overdrive and like dissociating. And then like this, you know, this like roller coaster of high, low, high, low. And I, it's been really hard to sort of find like the ebb and flow and the current of like, ooh, okay, we're here, right? Like it just, it's hard. I think that's a challenge a I would say all of us are up to now. Like, what is that ebb and flow and what is that current um, going to feel like, going to look like, given all these new set of conditions? So just want to affirm, I think we're all trying to figure out. I always hesitate or really question anyone who comes in with, like, you know, really concrete answers. I'm like, hmm, what's that about? <laughs> so, yeah, just want to affirm that. And I think so many of us are also questioning and in some ways, like gaslighting ourselves around our own experiences, like, you know, I think in my perspective, more just like this, like exhaustion, this like this exhaustion that's like you can't like rest it. Like you can't be like, I'm going to take a day to rest. And then you wake up like rejuvenated. Like it's really hard to access that sort of like rejuvenated feeling. Um, so, yeah, I just want to wanted to share that also to sort of affirm. I think we're all trying to figure this shit out. Yeah, for sure. And I think something that's important to know um, that I've um, seen said over and over is like, it's hard to recover from trauma when you're still going through it, mm. you know? And the thing is like, 
we're still going through the trauma because the pandemic is still happening as much as everyone tries to say it's not, but it is. Um, and it is a global crisis, but at the same time, um, the adjusting to new normal that we're not talking about should be like, what if we just masked all the time? What if we just got used to that? You know, what if we got used to taking precautions instead of trying to pretend like no precautions are necessary and then re-entering the cycle of um, variants? You know, if we got used to a different kind of cycle, the safety cycle, maybe that would help. But um, since we're not doing that, it's it's um, us being re-traumatized over and over. Uh, and it's just really hard to adjust to that when your your government, your authority figures are putting you through uh, emotional roller coasters again and again. <laughs> You know, and so we have to also remember, like, it's just hard. <laughs> How, like, you can't, you you sort of, you usually have to be, like, uh, somewhat distant from something before you can really take it all in and try to so-called recover or just adjust. And we're just, we're not away from it. <laughs> No. We're still in it now, and I'm that way too. I'm like, oh, I feel like I should be over it, and not not over the pandemic, but I feel like I should be over this exhaustion. Um, I feel like I should have adjusted, but I'm not because it's just it's still going. Mm, that's so powerful. I think I'm, I'm I'm gonna sit with that for a while. Just like, yeah, like when we're still moving through the crisis, how do mm -hmm. we? get over the crisis like yeah it's it's really counterintuitive when you say it out loud it's like what what do you ask it just doesn't make any sense you know no, it doesn't <laughs> but it's funny because sometimes you just have to hear something so simple and clear out loud to be like oh yeah word like i i don't know what that's about so i'm definitely gonna sit with that for sure for a while because it's funny i'm like thinking even like my therapy sessions i'm processing things that might have happened 10 15 years ago um and it's like just now you know i was just thinking of that this morning like wow like it takes it takes this distance it takes this time it takes reflection to be able to be like what happened what has been the impact of that on me and like we still we have we know like short immediate impacts of this pandemic on us right like all the ways in which we've seen but it's like how are we like how are we going to be impacted five years down the road, 10 years and beyond? And yeah, oof, it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm I prefer reminded. not to think about that. Ugh, if Me I either. think about that, I'm just going to be overly exhausted. Um, no, it's a spiral. No, 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 no. I'm like, we, I rebuke that today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is, it is a process, you know, and you can say words to yourself all you want. I can say so many platitudes, but ultimately it's like, Oh, a long exercise in patience with each other and especially mm -hmm. ourselves. You know, I'm like, I'm the most impatient with myself all the time. <laughs> mm. What, what, um, astrological sign are you? I'm a Libra. Okay. I love Libras. I'm like, that's interesting. I feel like there must be something else in your chart because Libras are usually like indecisive, which sometimes can lead to like a weird impatientness I'm like, hmm. I'm like i'm a tiger libra it's important to notice my note my chinese astrological sign is a tiger Oop, that part uh, i'm a i'm a fire tiger thank you 
exactly so there we go i'm like I'm so like, missing here um yeah the other tiger libra that i've met is um a lot like me <laughs> we really relate to each other we have strong personalities i love that i love when you see yourself reflected in someone and you're like oh oh this okay I'm not alone in the madness. Like, yeah, I think I think it's just that trait of a tiger Libra where we have like very strong opinions, but we also try to see things from different sides. <laughs> very powerful, very powerful, uh, but yes, strong. Uh, well, Ellie, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for being here with me today. Um, I know it's a lot earlier on the west side of the country. I'm like, I feel way deep in my day, but really grateful for you taking the time and then also just sharing all of your observations and the gift of just like reminding us to like notice you know like I'm I'm leaving this conversation with some deep reflections and just like oh well yeah there are reasons why we feel this way <laughs> and sometimes it's not just like an intellectual exercise and I really want to thank you for like reminding us of it's yeah, it's beyond just like our head and what we tell ourselves in the head. Like there's real impact of everything we're navigating. And thank you for your work. Oh, thank you so much for having me and having this conversation. I think it was really validating for me as well. So yes. <laughs> it definitely makes me feel less alone. <laughs> yes, love to hear it. Um, love to hear it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Of course. <laughs>